Did you ever wonder what it would be like to be part of the Sparkfile coaching community? Here's how the Sparkfile community describes it. The most honest, safe, life-affirming, and life-changing experience I've had in all my 55 years. The best. I'm incredibly grateful to Laura and Susan for teaching me the tools and structures that I need to get past the fear and to just do it anyway. The Spark File is a portal to your creative powers and believing in yourself. This group is spiritually, emotionally, mentally supportive, creative, amazing, encouraging, life-shifting, and liberating uber talented warm thoughtful lovely wonderful people i need a group like this to give me the kick in the ass that i need to start making the things that i want to make and do there's a big beautiful creative trampoline that just like catches you gently and just launches you out with so much love if you want to learn more about the spark file creativity coaching including our six-month blaze course visit the sparkfile.com slash blaze and schedule a no pressure no obligation call to find out what is possible and how we can support you it's time to take it and make it the spark file podcast may contain profanity and other adult content please use your discretion Something that inspires me. I dump it in my spark file. be something that I wanna make or how I wanna be. I pump it in my spark file. I jump into my spark file. Let's open up the spark file. Welcome to the spark file, where we believe that everyone is creative, but smart, creative people don't go it alone. No, they don't. I'm Laura Camion. And I'm Susan Blackwell. If you're an OG listener, hi. Hi. Welcome back, Sparkly. If you're joining us for the first time, you should know that all are welcome here. Whether you've put your creativity on hold during this time, or you've clung to it like a lifeline, either way, we welcome you. But you may be asking yourself, ladies, what exactly is a spark file? Mm -hmm. Where do I get one? What do I file in it? These are such good questions. And we have an answer for you. We do. A spark file is a place where you consistently collect all your inspirations and all your fascinations. Here's the deal. Laura and I are makers and we make all kinds of things. If you're like us and you're making stuff all the time or want to be making stuff all the time, you know the wellspring of inspiration can run a little dry, especially now. But don't freak out. We are on the lookout for fresh ideas, images, and inspiration that spark creativity and peak curiosity. Things that inspire us to get up off of our asses and make things like this podcast or a trailblazing novel written in your own completely new and singular way oh, oh. every episode we're going to reach <laughs> into the spark file and exchange some sparks and from time to time we're going to talk to some folks who spark us as well and if you're not careful you might just find yourself visiting other realms so without further ado Ooh. let's open up the, the spark, spark file, file. Laura Camion. Blackwell. Laura Camion. We are still, still talking about, still unpacking the spark that is the brain, the work of Dr. Jill Bolte Taylor. I mean, if you have not listened to last week's episode where Sue Sparks made with the whole brain, a whole brain spark, 
stop what you're doing right now, which is listening to this podcast, and <laughs> go back to last <laughs> week's episode version. of our podcast. <laughs> Please, it's worth it. It's so worth it. Oh, that was good. I'm just struck by the potential application mm-hmm. of her work on our lives, our creativity, our, our relationships, our relationships, our entrepreneurial pursuits. Mm-hmm. I was saying to you recently, I feel like it's going to improve the quality of our lives. 100%. Like immediately. Like immediately. immediately. Yeah. Yeah. For and sure. I just want to say out loud, I want to thank the baby Jesus or whoever's responsible for yeah. giving us good, healthy brains that can ingest that information and implement it. Because as as we were talking about it, I was like, oh, I don't know that everyone has a brain makeup that can, I mean, to be honest, it took me a couple passes to really, and I don't fully, fully understand the depths of that work yet. But but after a couple passes, I was able to understand it and begin to weave it in to my brain yeah. experience. And I'm thankful for that. Me I'm thankful too. for that. Yeah. I'm thankful that you have begun to weave it into my brain experience. Right? Yes. Yes. You and your little knitting needles. You got in and there. your little loom. You. you. Well, yeah. that was a fun one. And I keep thinking about it. And I keep thinking about all of our listeners and our clients and how it might be incorporated into their lives, into their creativity, into their work, into their satisfaction. And it, it, Mm, I'm so thankful. It's good stuff. Yeah. It's really good stuff. Oh, you know what I didn't mention when we were recording that is Dr. JBT, Jill Bolter-Taylor says, once you understand those four pieces of the brain, those four characters, Mm -hmm. character one, two, three, and four, not only can you see when your brain character mm-hmm. is taking the wheel and sort of driving, you can see it on other people too. And I oh, think that's absolutely true. A hundred percent. And now we have a name for it. And now, yeah. you know, we can recognize maybe not just like, Oh, she's type a, but right now, so-and-so is living in character one. For the time being, for this moment. Or that person maybe got some tough feedback and they've slipped into character two, like they're in a phase. If you haven't listened to that episode of the podcast, or if you didn't follow along closely, you might be like, or if you didn't take my instructions, like, you know, 60 seconds ago when I said, go back and listen to that that episode first. (laughs) Uh, Anyway. It just, it's amazing. Seuss. I'm so into it. But you know what else I'm into? The spark that you're going to spark on me oh, today. Oh, you're going to be into this. I'm very excited. Um, but I will say, just to wrap that up, of course, I already ordered the book. And so you may get a spark right back at you. That could be I, a spark back because I'm going to dig into it. that book. And also, if you're in our creativity group, uh, you should just know that we're probably going to do a <laughs> brace yourself <laughs> strap in. Cause we're probably going to want to do a, a whole session on it. I think because so. it, I just feel like it At is so one. useful for humans and creatives and creatives. Exactly. Yeah. Just thinking about it in terms of how it will help you to create your life, the life yeah. that you want, but yeah. also like we said, a filter, you could run, you know, your current creative piece through and be like, yeah, this creative piece is really all, Character four. 
it's peace, love, and, and, you know, it's a dance piece that is all character four. Great. Totally great. Character four, you know, character four, again, please just go back and listen or take a deep dive into the work of Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor. Uh, we have a client whom we adore, Kenyatta Emmanuel, who talks about, he always is aiming to capture the rapture. And I was like, oh yeah, Kenyatta. And I think we share yes. this with him, Kenyatta, and we want to make work that proves transcendent for people. We want That's to right. move them through our work, maybe into character yeah. three. And then if we're really doing our jobs well into character four. Let's light them all up. Light it up. Woo! Suze. Cam's so, what you got for me. Okay. So, you know, I recently celebrated my birthday. What birthday did you celebrate, Cam? An important one. How many is old? big one. Oh, it's the big five zero. Uh, I, know I love it. I know you just would never imagine it from my youthful voice. Um, big five zero, <laughs> baby. Yeah, I'm so happy you were born, um, and I'm so look. Thanks. I'm so happy you were healthy and alive. And yes, it's a glorious, yeah. glorious time to be alive, and I'm yeah. grateful. And it's a glorious time to be um, working on a creative project with Susan Blackwell. Rock thankful. On. I'm very, very thankful. So, sorry so, to interrupt you. You celebrated your birthday. I celebrated birthday. my birthday, and a beautiful friend sent me a beautiful gift. Thank you, Laura Coward. Oh, Laura Coward. Laura Coward. It Hi, reminds Laura. me how I didn't send you your gift, um, but I just want to acknowledge oh, yeah. I picked out a gift for Laura. I have had it for months. And just when I was starting <laughs> to wrap it up to send it to her, I was like, wait a second. <gasps> What? I don't know if this, I, I didn't quite think through the size, size of the of gift. It. And I was like, I don't even know if Laura has room in her home for this. So, but I do have a, I'll, I'll just say it, it's a baller gift, <gasps> but we're, we might have to rethink it. We'll talk we'll offline. See. Yes, absolutely. We'll see. We'll see. TBD, TBD. All right. But somebody sent you a sensible That's gift. That's right. My sweet friend, Laura Coward sent me a gift. And that gift was a copy of the book, Lincoln and the Bardo. And I, like immediately right there when I opened it, I started reading and I couldn't stop. Currently, as I write this, I'm about halfway through the book. And let me tell you, just sparks are flying. Flying, I say. I, I'm not even done with it, but that's not going to stop me from being sparked by this book. Can I just pause and say, yes. I've not read Lincoln and the Bardo. It has been on my list yes. for months and months. Somebody suggested it, highly recommended it to me months ago. And it's one of those things where it's like, if I had a little more downtime, yep. I would love to spend some time with Lincoln and the Bardo. And so I feel like yeah. I get to with you today, which is thrilling. You're going to get to it's, it might feel like a bit of a tease because I don't, I'm not going to give any spoilers, not having read the whole thing yet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I won't spoil it for myself. Um, but just some examples of how freaking sparkish it is just right from the jump. So I'm going to start with something that I knew about this book before Laura even sent me the book. I recall a story that you told me, Suze, about the author George Saunders mm -hmm. and the original spark of an idea that he had 
That's for this right. book. That's right. I would like to share that with everyone now. This is exciting. Okay, so the following is George Saunders' description of the spark that led to his novel, Lincoln and the Bardo. He says, Many years ago, during a visit to Washington, D.C., my wife's cousin pointed out to us a crypt on a hill and mentioned that in 1862, while Abraham Lincoln was president, his beloved son, Willie, died and was temporarily interned in that crypt, Hmm. and that the grief-stricken Lincoln had, according to the newspapers of the day, entered the crypt on several occasions to hold the boy's body. An image spontaneously leapt into my mind, a melding of the Lincoln Memorial and the Pieta. Mm. I carried that image around for the next Mm. 20 odd years. I'm going to say that again. I carried that image around for the next 20 odd years. Wow. Too scared to try something that seemed so profound. And then finally, in 2012, noticing that I wasn't getting any younger, not wanting to be the guy whose own gravestone would read, afraid to embark on scary artistic project he desperately longed to attempt. (laughs) I decided to take a run at it in exploratory fashion, no commitments. My novel, Lincoln and the Bardo, is the result of that attempt. What he does not go on to say, but I will say, is this. Lincoln and the Bardo received widespread critical acclaim. It was a New York Times bestseller and won the 2017 Man Booker Prize. How's that for just an experimental, I'm just going to take a run at it? Wow. Well, he is George Saunders. He is. He'd never written a novel. He had, you know, short stories. So for him, this was like a bigger project Mm -hmm. than he could conceive of. I just Mm -hmm. think it's extraordinary. And as I'm currently reading the book, even more so now, first of all, the image that leapt into his mind, a melding of the Lincoln Memorial and the Pieta. The Lincoln Memorial, many of us know, is that glorious marble statue of Abraham Lincoln on a 10-foot pedestal as he sits in an armchair and gazes downward with a very serious and solemn look. Hmm. was sculpted by Daniel Chester French and carved by the Piccarilli brothers. And the work was unveiled in 1922. Oh, interesting. So it was sculpted by like an artist, but like stoneworkers carved it. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Never knew that. Never knew that. And also 1922. So a good, you know, um, what is that? Uh, 60 years years of like after his presidency. Got it. Got it. But it's also coming up on the anniversary of that monument. That is correct. Yeah. I wonder if they're going to have a party. Maybe. And people can take selfies on his knee. They can cry up there and be like, hi. I think this isn't the image we're going for right now. Oh, sorry, 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 (laughs) sorry, 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 sorry. (laughs) A bit more modern image. But so let's picture in our mind the Abraham Lincoln Memorial Mm -hmm. um, and him in that armchair solemnly Mm. looking out. And then combine that with the Pieta, which translates to the pity. Mm. If you're not familiar, 
This is the sculpture that depicts the body of Jesus Christ after the crucifixion on the lap of his mother, Mary. Mm. It was created out of a single block of marble by Michelangelo, which is housed in the St. Peter's in the Vatican City. I never knew that it meant the pity. I never knew that. I just always was like, oh, it's the Pieta. Uh-huh. Ah, the pity. The pity. So just sit with that for a minute. This sculpture of the Virgin Mary holding her child's dead body, the idea of Lincoln, a la the Lincoln Memorial, Mm. holding his child's dead body. It's an incredibly powerful image. Mm. And George Saunders kept that image in his mind for 20-some years until he came face-to-face with this old idea. He didn't want to be the guy whose own gravestone would read, afraid to embark on scary artistic project he desperately longed to attempt. And Sue's like, that alone is just so sparkish. We talk about this a good deal with our clients, this idea that one day the frustration of letting fear beat you down or the pain of not telling the story becomes so great that you kind of say, fuck it. I do not want to die having been too afraid to create this. Amen. Yeah. And when we talk to makers, you know, on, on some of our maker sods, we often ask, is there something you know you need to do before you're done? Mm-hmm. Which is a bit of the same concept. It's trying to get at that. Like, is there a story that is burning in you? Maya Angelou said, there is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside of you. Oh, I have always felt that deeply, mm. deeply. We have a client, Jennifer Rosenfeld, who has a story that she thinks will be her big regret on her deathbed if she doesn't tell it. Mm-hmm. And Suze, I realize as much as we talk about this, I've never asked you, do you have a thing you know you need to do before you're done? That's so interesting. I don't know. You and I don't ask each other the questions we ask the guests on our podcast or even our clients. <laughs> you know, just something that so they don't write afraid to embark on a big, despite despite all of her teachings about creativity, too afraid to embark on this <laughs> big scary project. There, there are sort of things that I feel like are in the shoot. Mm-hmm. Like I am certain, though I find it, that I find the thought of it fairly daunting that that sort of uh daunting is is lightening up a little bit but i have a strong feeling you and i will write a book oh yeah a nonfiction book uh-huh and yeah. so i hope that happens before i get hit by a bus but if it doesn't please carry the torch laura <laughs> those are the words i'll say I to you will. I will. on my deathbed i'll clutch I'll just clutch book. your shirt and pull your face close to mine and say Laura, right the, the book, 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 the book, and then Laura. that's that's the sound yeah. uh, Nathan and I make around our house when we're watching a movie and it's real sad and somebody's dying, and then right when they die, we both go, um, <laughs> So if I don't get to it, I hope that you do. I will. But um, I will. you know, I have like you, I have a big spark file, mm-hmm. and. There are so many things. In addition to my spark file, I'm also looking over in the maker corner of my room, which has my <laughs> painting easel and my 
um, things that I want to sew and cut and dye and all sorts of paint and all sorts of things. And I hope I get to those too, but I don't know that I have anything. There's paintings that I want to make. I I feel like I think of things and then I get them out into the world. Yeah. If you feel strongly enough, you get them, you get them done. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Especially knowing who you are and what you do. Yeah. I have one that you, I I won't talk about it here at length or anything, but I think, you know, and it's really one that I have gotten up out into the world, but Mm -hmm. it still feels like unfinished or not done yet. Not fully realized. Yeah. And so I'm like, "Uh uh-huh. Yep. There's more, there's more. But back to George Saunders. After 20 years, he finally gives himself permission to embark on this scary creative project. And what he creates is Lincoln and the Bardo. The Bardo, by the way, if you don't know, refers to the liminal state between two lives on earth. If you believe in purgatory, you might refer to it as the Bardo. But in Tibetan Buddhism, for example, it refers to the intermediate state between death and reincarnation when the consciousness is not connected to a body. Interesting. When I first heard the title of it, I didn't know what it meant. I thought it was a Spanish word and it was, uh, or like a district in some city in Spain. (laughs) Or New Orleans or something. Yeah, (laughs) that's right. That's right. Exactly. 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 Nope, not at all. Metaphorically speaking, Bardo can also describe times when we feel like our life is suspended like a period of sickness or deep, deep, deep meditation. Like if you're mm -hmm, in suspension. Yeah. So a a time of suspension, which could be illness or it could be transcendence. It is Mm -hmm. not a district in New Orleans. In no way, shape or form. Nope. No, it's not what that is. But it also refers to, just want to make sure I, I want to get this in my brain so I can be like a, I can sound smart at cocktail parties. Mm -hmm. I don't attend cocktail parties, but um, so that it can be, (laughs) if I I did, that it is also purgatory what we know as purgatory, or it's also a liminal space. An intermediate space. Before reincarnation when a soul is not attached to a body. Am I getting that right? That's right. Yeah. He he said, although he named it after the Tibetan tradition, Mm -hmm. he did make sure to sort of weave elements of Christian and Egyptian beliefs regarding afterlives. So that Mm. like, he didn't want the reader to bring too many perceptions, preconceptions of yeah. what they thought the afterlife meant. Mm-hmm. So it he wanted it to be just a little like vague enough, but in the general sense of spirits not attached to bodies. Got it. This is fun. So truth is, as you know, I'm still in the middle of the book, so I'm not yeah. going to give you any spoilers, okay. but I can tell you I'm totally freaking sparked by it. I was sparked by page one. First of all, I need to mention one thing that is so original about this book. Saunders did a ton, like a shit ton of research for this book, even though it takes place on a single night in Abraham Lincoln's life. Saunders really wanted to know like exactly where Lincoln was in his presidency when his son died. And there's references to so much more outside of that one night, but one of the most amazing things he does is he puts 
in some cases, entire chapters together with only historical citations. So what I mean is he would take a few sentences from a historical document, cite it, and then a few lines from another document, cite it, and then another document, cite it, and on and on. It might be a line from a newspaper article in 1862, and then a few lines from the personal correspondence of so-and-so and so-and-so in 1963. Textbooks, biographies, you name it. It is astonishing how much research he did. But let me give you just a quick example. I'm just going to read like one page. This is a chapter following Willie's death, but this is an example of of how it goes. Mary Lincoln's mental health had never been good, and the loss of young Willie ended her life as a functional wife and mother. In A Mother's Trial, Mary Lincoln and the Civil War by Jane Coster. Around two in the afternoon, I heard a terrible commotion from the part of the house where the sick child lay. It appeared the moment had come. Mrs. Lincoln rushed past me, head lowered, making a sound I have never heard emitted from a human throat before or since. Hilliard, previously cited, account of Sophie Lennox, made. While the president's outburst allowed for depiction, his wife's did not. Epstein, previously cited. The pale face of her dead boy threw her into convulsions. Keckley, previously cited. Mary Lincoln collapsed into her bed. Vondreth, previously cited. Mm. An altered woman. Keckley. So, and it goes on. It goes on and on. But it's entire chapters at a time. He didn't write a word of that. But as I'm reading it, of course, I'm like, this has to be 200 hours of research and reading other For people's a small accounts passage. to pull in, but pull in exactly the right sentences that on their own account do make for a whole paragraph. Cam's was the, I mean, you love history. Fucking love it. Were you just like, Ooh. I was like, oh my God. Okay. The amount of hours. The amount of knowledge, how yeah. thoroughly he knows these people, how he's able to illustrate from different sources, people's memory, people's memory is foggy and it's different. There are pages where it's like he's pulling from different sources and it all flows. But one person describes the moon, you know, as a bright white, full white light in the sky. And the next person was like that night was a grayish silver sliver of a moon. Mm. And and all these people, it's the same like historic events huh. that they're describing. And it's like, yeah. they're not the same. They have different memories of it. So that, that amazed me. I mean, now listen, I've put sparks together before that are a lot of different sources. <laughs> and I didn't do a lot, but like thread them together and sure. share them. Um, but to, to write a novel, um, it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. And it's, it's really deep. And he finds, um, in just incredibly memorable single lines from sources like close to the Lincolns that make such a difference. And then the next chapter will be, all of these extraordinary characters that just came out of his head and onto the page. Oh, wow. And they are all the people in the Bardo, all the people who (gasps) are without bodies. I know what that means now. You know what that means. (laughs) So it is 
just extraordinary. I mean, I think some people, and by the way, this is another thing to remember, when embarking on the Scary Creative Project, yes, he ended up winning a, you know, a Man Booker Award. He ended up with a New York Times bestseller. But also, just as many critics and people who are like, I can't read this. Those citations, it's like reading a citation every other line. I can't do it. Mm. And so there is no creation without criticism. Mm. I'm just reminded of that. And I'm so sparked by it. Like if we have in our minds, like I'm going to make the most glorious work of art ever and no one, it'll be so great. No one will criticize it. I just don't think that is reality. Huh. In my mind. Yeah. So our solution to that, as you know, has been like, so you don't give the measuring stick to other people. Do you feel it's an extraordinary work of art? Do you feel proud of it? Is it meaningful to you? Put it into the world if you choose to. Great. Um, but let's not make it about like, but what did people say? Because people will say great things and people will say less than great things. Like, I just found that to be interesting as well. That like, yes, he was like showered with accolades. And if you go on Goodreads or if you go on Amazon, there's just as many people going, wait, what? I was told this was the most amazing book. Yeah. So, whatever. There you have it. Whatever is the answer. It just always feels so different when you're on the inside of, like when you're the, your work is the one that's receiving that feedback. I can sit on the outside of that and hear you talk about that and be like, yeah, nothing's for everyone. And then when it's your work, I'm just like, I just feel differently about it. But then to that, my brain answers with, okay, so, so we're, we can, we can create work that we either don't share with anyone or we don't, um, it's only seen by a safe amount of people, you know, that we can assume will give us accolades. But if you want like quantity, like yeah, a if quantity you want to scale it up, if you want to scale yeah. it up. Yeah. So anyway, you know, I yeah. just hearkening back to Jill Bolte Taylor, yeah. she would, I think she, the little bit that I understand, I think she would be like, um, it doesn't, she really like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yeah. I can imagine yeah. if we're thinking, if we're in the mindset of we are all one, a person's criticism of my work is just as likely to be a criticism of themselves and their own that's, work. That's right. That's so, right. Yes. So I was astonished by like how he put these chapters together. He didn't technically, in some of the chapters, didn't write a single line of it, but... But he assembled it he painstakingly. Assembled it. It's like one paint stroke at a time. It's mind-boggling. Yeah. And and yet, and one paint stroke at a time, except that you had to spend 60 hours finding Isolating that perfect the stroke. paint stroke. Yeah. And then the next one. So, I don't know. Then, in you know, like I said, in the next chapter, he has these gloriously colorful characters, all of whom are in the bardo, presumably, and... They're all astonished that a living human being, Abraham Lincoln, comes to the Bardo to hold a dead body. And they watch and they are so moved and they crave that being held because they are spirits now and cannot be held. 
And they want so desperately to communicate with him. So I won't say any more about what happens in the book, but I just want to marvel at that completely unique format and astonishing exploration of a historical figure through a fictional lens. And when we talk about like trailblazing, following your own guiding sense of what the work wants to be, this, I think, is what we mean. It doesn't have to follow a structure that you've seen before. Yes. Or a format that you've seen before. Oh, my God. I love it. And for my history nerds out there, my God, literally any historical person, any historical event can be viewed through a different lens. You can add fiction to it. You can have like a brand new story as only you can tell it. So speaking of people from history, this book has already, I've been completely sparked and I'm kind of weaving my what do we make of it ideas throughout the spark today, just so you know, but I am ready for a real juicy deep dive into Mary Todd Lincoln. I think Mm. she has, you know, she has appeared in various movies about her husband, but wow, this book sparked me to give a closer look to her. And I want to share a bit of that with you now. According to an article in the Washington Post by Louis Bayard, Mary Todd Lincoln was an ambitious and polarizing first lady. She was scorned by her enemies as gross, avaricious, a she-wolf, cold as a chunk of ice. She was slammed after leaving the White House for basic, quote, unlovableness. A SmithsonianMagazine.com article by Kat Eschner says, Abraham Lincoln's wife has been called a wildcat, menstrual, and bipolar, among other things. I mean, Suze, when I hear such an effort being made to shun a woman, I always have the inclination to like look deeper. I usually think, Jesus, why the pile on? Do you know what I mean? Just counterpoint, I have worked with people who are most unpleasant and and yeah. they can be women too that it's just it's not sort of like oh they're just owning their power it's way past that it is it, it they're confrontative and angry mm-hmm. and so i, I hear yeah. you and i'm also like and you know there are most unpleasant people that do exist uh 100% and i think that it is possible she perhaps she was bipolar, but when we look historically and people did not get treatments for it. Now in today's day and age, the person that you worked with could have the opportunity to get treatment for, um, you know, for anything. But uh, so I'm not saying that Mary Todd Lincoln was, um, was completely innocent in this, but I think when I hear like that viciousness I do think why the pylon and it makes me want to take a a closer look. So in light of this being like 2021, there's a few things that drew me in, you know, with new context. First of all, Mary Todd Lincoln is typically criticized for her mental health. And I feel defensive on her behalf because there's a few things to know about her. 
before we can assess, you know, and many people have, trust me, but Mary Todd Lincoln was born to a large wealthy family in Kentucky. She was the fourth of seven children. She was well-educated. This is early to mid 1800s. So that was not especially common for girls Mm. sent to finishing school. She learned French dance, literature, music, drama, of course, social graces. At six years old, Mary's mother died in childbirth. Mm. Giving birth often happened at home. I can't say for sure, but I can imagine a six-year-old child being traumatized by the sounds of childbirth and then her mother dying, subsequently dying. In six months' time, her father announced that he was engaged to someone new. He remarries, and he and his new wife have nine children together. Apparently, the stepmother was not too fond of Mary and the seven children from the previous marriage. Um, So for those doing the math, that meant her father had a total of 16 children. Mm. So I think, how much support does a child get when when a parent dies, Mm. the new one remarries, there are 16 children in the house? So these mental health challenges, such as depression, and migraine headaches Mary experienced throughout her life supposedly began around the age of six mm. when her mom dies. And I read that and I think, of course, her mom died. Her mom yeah. died. She's six years old. Yeah. I mean, she began to me showing signs of grief or PTSD, et cetera. That makes sense. Um, as soon as she was a teenager, she got the hell out of that house. And she went to live with her married older sister. As she came to dating age, she was totally a hit in society. Hey, those etiquette lessons paying off. Um, She had many potential suitors, including Abraham Lincoln's political opponent, Stephen Douglas, which I think is a spark and which is really interesting. Huh. Um, Yeah, exactly. But much- A rom-com, maybe. A rom-com. Who's who's she going to go with? (laughs) Old Abe or Stephen Douglas? Um, Who knows? Tune in next week to find out. But much to everyone's surprise, she chose Lincoln, even though he was poor. And at that time, it didn't really look like he had much of a political career ahead of him. Wow. When she was married to Abe, she had four sons with him. Only their eldest son, Robert Todd Lincoln, lived longer than his parents. Wow. So it's a lot of loss. Edward Baker Lincoln, known as Eddie, died of tuberculosis at four years old. William Wallace Lincoln, known as Willie, died of typhoid fever while Lincoln was president. This is the son who George Saunders writes about in Lincoln and the Bardo. Thomas Lincoln, known as Tad, died at age 18, either from pneumonia or congestive heart failure or tuberculosis. This is all according to Wikipedia. Uh, Robert and Tad survived to adulthood, and then they both survived the death of their father, but only Robert outlived his mother. So just let me give you like a little timeline. Track with me here. Mary met Abe in 1840. She was 21. He was 31. They fell in love. They got engaged. In early 41, he suddenly and inexplicably breaks off the engagement. They remain apart for a year. Then they get back together and promptly marry. Like uh, one year later, they promptly marry. A year after that, they have their first son. 
Three years later, they have their second son. Four years later, Eddie, the second son, Eddie, dies. Mary almost immediately gets pregnant again, and that same year, Willie is born. Three years later, Tad is born. Now she has three children. She's lost one to tuberculosis. Eight years later, her husband becomes president amidst a pretty, pretty challenging time in our country. Yeah. Yeah. A civil war begins. One year into his presidency, their son Willie dies of typhoid fever at 11 years old. One year after that, Mary suffers some kind of head injury from a carriage accident, which increases her migraine headaches. Yeah, that's not good. Two years later, Mary is sitting next to her husband at the Ford Theater when he Mm. was shot and killed. According to Wikipedia, she sat with her husband watching the comic play Our American Cousin at Ford's Theater. During the third act, the president and Mrs. Lincoln drew closer. Mary whispered to her husband, who was holding her hand, What will Miss Harris think of my hanging on to you so? The president smiled and replied, She won't think anything about it. That was the last conversation the Lincolns ever had. Five minutes later, at about 10.15 p.m., President Lincoln was shot by John Wilkes Booth. She was holding Abraham's hand when Booth's bullet struck the back of his head. I can't imagine. I Uh can't imagine. And unlike the outpouring of support for Jackie Kennedy when she was seated next to her husband when he was shot, the world did not burst out with condolences for Mary Todd Lincoln. Now here she is, widowed, two children living, two children she's lost. She has to petition the United States government to give her any kind of pension. She literally fights for it, positioning her husband as a fallen warrior, a victim of the Civil War. Begrudgingly, she eventually gets them to agree. Six years later, her youngest child, Thomas, dies from pneumonia or heart failure Mm. at age 18. I mean, is it any wonder this woman struggled? Eventually, her only surviving son had her committed to a mental institution. Yeah. She was 56 years old. According to Abraham Lincoln Online, Robert Todd Lincoln, the president's eldest son and a practicing attorney, arranged the insanity trial after agonizing over his distressed mother's erratic behavior. He understood Illinois law, which required a jury trial for involuntary commitment to a mental institution, Mary did not realize that a public trial awaited her and was forcibly taken to the courthouse on May 19, 1875, where 17 witnesses testified to her unstable condition and no witnesses were called in her favor. Again, would you not lose your mind over that? Uh, The whole thing is so deeply sad. I mean... Yeah, you're you're you know. Of course, we're just sort of like this happened, this happened, this happened. But when you think of the like the events and the like the emotional blows that these things, the it's just extraordinary. And and to never heal from a trauma, perhaps the first one at six years old, you know, and just keep layering them on. So three months after being committed into an institution, Mary orchestrated her own escape. She smuggled letters to her lawyer, James B. Bradwell, and his wife, Myra Bradwell, 
who was not only her friend, but also a feminist lawyer. Oh. Now, when I read that, that I was like, record scratch, feminist lawyer, <laughs> did you say? <laughs> feminist lawyer, it's That's 1875. Amazing. It's 1875. Women aren't even al- allowed to be lawyers, but Myra Bradwell changes all that. She's a complete badass feminist lawyer, and wow. she is a spark into herself. Please look her up. There are wow. stories galore about this pioneering woman. So James and Myra Bradwell work to get Mary out of the institution. She's released to her sister until her death in 1882 at the age of 63. She remained estranged from her only living son, Robert, for mm. all that time because he mm. put her into the... Yeah. So... Her actual mental, emotional, and physical condition in 1875 is still debated by historians and clinicians and the hosts of the Sparkfile podcast. <laughs> um, I mean, people do not know, and I'm certainly not saying that I know any better. I just think that there are far too many stories in history of women with, like, quote, foul tempers. who were pushed down by society, told to be quiet, who suffered the consequences for not being willing to or not being able to fit the mold. I just think history has been very, very unforgiving and unkind to this woman. In the book, Mary Todd Lincoln, a biography by Jean Harvey Baker, Baker writes, like a flawed marble statue, the cracks of which are repeatedly hammered, Mary Lincoln was a victim battered by personal adversity and trapped by destructive conventions of Victorian domesticity. She may have been the partner of one of American's best-known presidents, but after all, she was only human. In an article on ThoughtCo.com by Robert McNamara, from today's vantage point, it's honestly impossible to assess her true mental condition. It has been often pointed out that traits she exhibited may have simply indicated eccentric behavior, poor judgment, or the effects of a stressful life, not Mm. actual mental illness. And grief. I mean, I think we know so much more about the power of grief now. And we cannot rule out the effects of the quote-unquote solutions she was given. She relied on over-the-counter drugs that contained alcohol and what? Opium, first of all. Mm. Historian Jean Baker, again, called her behavior eccentric, said her migraine headaches had been mistakenly diagnosed as hallucinations and that she had been given large doses of chloral hydrate for insomnia. I mean, I would just really love a more forgiving look at this woman's life um, and frankly, how we've treated women throughout history who've been denied any support or help regarding their mental and emotional challenges. That's, them's my feelings. I just think (laughs) like you cannot take from it when when a woman in that period goes to a doctor and they're like, you're hysterical. Yeah. You've lost it. And there was no real help for it. Yeah. Um, And we have such a greater awareness of the brain's capabilities and what may be going on in the brain now than they did then, obviously. Yeah, and it was also a time where if somebody needed a convenient way to remove you from a situation, if you were a male someone, you could say, you could claim yeah. they're hysterical and have them institutionalized and yep. 
you know. And later, like, um, you know, have a piece of your brain removed because that was the oh, answer. Yeah, that's so, right. Yeah. So I think there's still more to be, to be learned there. And I guess I would just love, I think her life is truly a study in grief. Really. You could put mm. the lens on and, and Lincoln and the Bardo in some ways does that, but in a very, very unique way. Yeah. So another fascinating paradox in Mary Todd Lincoln's world, and I have not completely figured this out yet. It doesn't seem logical to me, but if you recall, her family was a wealthy family in Kentucky. Mm -hmm. And although her family rejected the idea of slavery, according to an article on e-history by Kimberly Largent, they owned one slave for every member of the family, one enslaved person, what we would call an enslaved person now, uh, for every member of the family. Even though they rejected the idea, yes, the concept of slavery. That is correct, which is very hard to reconcile in my mind. But uh -huh. there's some good news here if you stick with me. Apparently, <sighs> so Mary's father was very vocal about his anti-slavery stance. <laughs> wow. Pretty confusing because that makes mm -hmm. him a slaveholder in an anti-slavery family mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in a state that allows slavery to exist. So... It's very hard to hold that in one's mind. Yeah. According to the history website, heathervoit.com, Mary learned about slavery growing up in Kentucky. Her father's involvement in state politics meant that his children heard political issues debated at home. One of those issues was slavery. One of the enslaved people they called Aunt Sally was a mother figure to Mary when Mary's own mother died. Mm -hmm. When Mary heard a knocking outside one night, Sally explained that she had made a mark on the fence to signal to runaway enslaved people that they could stop here for food. Mary never told her father. So she sort of worked in cahoots with uh -huh. who she called Aunt Sally and her relationship with Aunt Sally helped Mary form her very staunch anti-slavery stance. Mm. Again, from heathervoit.com, shortly after she became first lady and moved to Washington, Mary struck up a friendship with her African-American dressmaker and former enslaved person, Elizabeth Keckley. Mm-hmm. When former enslaved people came flocking to the capital during the Civil War without food or a place to sleep, Elizabeth made it her mission to help them. Elizabeth, that's the dressmaker. Yeah. Mary wrote to her husband, then President Abraham Lincoln, asking him to support her friend's charity. She also made contributions herself. In a letter to her husband, she wrote, Elizabeth says the immense number of contrabands that's what Elizabeth referred to them as in Washington. Uh, referred to the enslaved, enslaved people? people. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They eventually uh, created a program, I think, um, that inc even included that name. Um, she says the immense number of enslaved people in Washington are suffering intensely, many without bed covering and have to use any bit of carpet to cover themselves, many dying of want. 
I have given her the privilege of investing $200 here in bed covering. This sum, I am sure you will not object to being used in this way. The cause of humanity requires it. So unaware of Mary's growing anti-slavery feelings, radical abolitionist Jane Swisshelm expected Mary Lincoln to be a Confederate sympathizer. When they met at the White House in 1863, however, Swisshelm believed that Mary was, quote, more radically opposed to slavery than the president. By listening to her African-American friends' descriptions of suffering, Mary took up the cause of helping former enslaved people. Through this cause, Mary gained a perspective on slavery that most whites, including the president, did not have. That was all from heathervoigt.com, but a similar sentiment was shared on history.com. They said, Mary Todd, even more so than her husband, was a staunch abolitionist. She supported his political career as he rose from the Illinois legislature to become one of the country's most charismatic political orators to speak out against slavery. His views aroused the ire of Southern slaveholding interests. Even early on in his career, Lincoln received death threats from pro-slavery Southerners, and Mary Todd was labeled a traitor to her Southern Kentucky roots. During the Civil War, she felt a deep sense of estrangement and tragedy. Most of her male family members fought on the side of the Confederacy. Whoa! In fact, several of her half-brothers served in the Confederate Army and were killed in action, and one served as a surgeon in the Confederacy. Mm. I want to pause here for a moment just to think about that. Suze, I have seen, as I'm sure you have, I've yeah. seen movies and TV shows. I've read stories about families fighting each other during the Civil War, brother to brother on the battlefield. But until recent times in our country where politics has divided friends and neighbors and families. I did not have a full appreciation and understanding of the of that pain, I think, yeah. as I do now. Yeah. Yeah. And now, like this just floored me. Yeah. Imagine being Mary Todd Lincoln. Your husband is the president. <laughs> I just got choked up. Your husband is the president of the United States. You are fighting to put an end to the practice of enslaving human beings. And your family is actively fighting, literally willing to lose their lives to defeat you and to defeat that idea. Yeah. Uh, My heart hurts when I think about that. First, the fact that there's even an argument in favor of the practice of slavery is stomach-churning, but that the people in favor of it are her family members. Yeah. I don't know. I don't mean to make it seem trite. I don't mean to like sum up an enormous topic like this in such a small statement, but it hurts when the values that make so much sense to you, basic human rights, human equality, but the people closest to you don't agree with those values. Yeah. It can be devastating. Yeah. I don't know about you, but 
I have friends and family members who have disconnected from me in the past year. Whether it was when I posted on social media, my support for Black Lives Matter, or when Joe Biden won the presidency, or when I chose not to travel due to a pandemic. I don't know. Like, I literally don't know what of my actions could have been so in such disagreement with their values. But I have had people unfollow me on social media, which is ironic because I barely even post on social media. (laughs) But no explanation given. I'm talking actual friends and family members. And Mm. I'm not going to lie. It really hurts. And if the reason is political as I suspect it is, yeah, it hurts even more. I know I'm not alone in this. I know that families across our country are being torn apart. We're, we're losing important people in our lives because of politics, conspiracy theories, extremism. And maybe they're not dying on battlefields, but they could be at some point. Yeah. But they're still gone. And I don't know. I, I will probably likely do an entire spark on this topic because it is a bounty. Um, I, I think I'll just say this. I mean, I don't care if someone, you know, I think for a lot of us, it has been important to state our values. Yeah. State them clearly. And if these values are not in alignment, like if you, not even that we have to align on everything, but that we need to align on uh, basic human rights. We need to align on those things. And if we yeah. don't, then if you want to unfollow me, that's okay. Um, but what is that next step? So we unfollow each other. How are we going to you know, come back together? How do we heal? I don't know. So that will need to be another spark for another day. Um, But I'll just say our country is feeling this pain. I know I'm not alone in losing people. And creatively, I think the world is ripe to look at the story of Mary Todd Lincoln in a new light. And I think her life experience could illuminate a lot for us right now. Now, I want to go back. Remember the dressmaker, Elizabeth Keckley, I mentioned. wasn't Keckley one of the names that's cited in that Lincoln correct. and the Bardo? Yeah, you just yes, said that name, you and will. it struck my ear. That is correct. Good it was listening. the last name you said. Keckley. Yeah, good listening, yep. Suze. Hey, I'm not just sitting over here nodding my head in silence. I'm you. actually listening. Thanks. I'm actually listening. So Elizabeth Keckley, woman of color, former enslaved person, she bought her own freedom and her son's freedom and became a successful business owner in Washington, D.C. She's an astonishing spark. Astonishing spark. Please look her up. She and Mary became close friends for a time. But in 1868, Elizabeth Keckley published a memoir titled Behind the Scenes or 30 Years a Slave and four years in the White House, which I would love to read and I believe is back in print. According to Wikipedia, although this book provides valuable insight into the character and life of Mary Todd Lincoln, at the time, the former First Lady and much of the public and press regarded it as a breach of friendship and confidentiality. Keckley was widely 
criticized for her book, especially as her editor had published letters from Mary Lincoln to her. It has Mm. now been gratefully accepted by many historians and biographers and used to flesh out the president and the first lady's personalities behind the scenes in the executive mansion. In a fantastic article in the New York Times by Nancy Wartick, the path that had led Keckley to become a first lady's most trusted friend was almost unimaginable. She survived rape and years of beating, going on to start her own business and eventually buying her way out. Then she earned a place as one of the reigning courtiers of high society in Washington. One of a relatively small number of literate former enslaved people. Wow. Keckley was also among the first people of color, woman of color, to publish a book. Her memoir is now considered one of the most important narratives of Lincoln's domestic life. Mm. She was a historian, and that was really unusual for a black woman to write as a historian of a time and a place and a White House. Jennifer Flesher, author of the 2003 biography, Mrs. Lincoln and Mrs. Keckley, said in an interview, behind the scenes was sympathetic to Mary Lincoln, yet honest about her flaws. The appendix included, almost certainly without Keckley's permission, correspondence from Mrs. Lincoln to Keckley that put the first lady's difficult personality on display. Mm. Readers in her day, white readers, they took it as an audacious tell-all, Fleischer said. Mm. You know, how dare she? Yeah. There are, to them, there are two categories, the faithful servant mm. or the angry servant. Mm. Keckley was neither servant nor faithful nor angry. She presented herself the White House, and Mary Lincoln as she saw them and knew them. And that didn't work. That was all Fleshner. Now, uh, there's so much there. There's so much there. I just want to bring things full circle. The book that Keckley wrote, as you so astutely heard, the book that Keckley wrote in the 1800s was one of the resources George Saunders used for Lincoln and the Bardo. In that same New York Times article, Saunders says, I don't think my book would exist if I hadn't read her memoir. Saunders said of the novel in an email, it was reading her firsthand account that made me feel an anecdote I'd heard about Lincoln entering his son's tomb could support a book. It's the most detailed, moving thing written about the death of Willie and his parents' grief. Wow. He goes on to say, We've got to get our hands on this book. Right? He (sighs) goes on to say, What a life she had, George Saunders said in an email, to go from slavery to the White House, lose a son in the war, write a book, befriend the Lincolns, fall out of their favor, Witness so many historical moments. To me, her book is beautiful, and I think we are so lucky to have it. Mm. So this book, Lincoln and the Bardo, which I have not even finished yet, (laughs) 
has (laughs) already had a profound impact on my life and led me down so many sparkish paths, discovering more books and more people whose stories are astonishing and need to be heard. It's made me think about how we have drastically misjudged mental illness, mental differences, and emotional well-being in so many ways throughout history, and in particular, women's mental well-being. It's made me think about what crushing grief can do to a person, what feeling responsible for other people's deaths can do to us, how painful it can be to be separated from family while they're still alive or after death. what the consequences are for a woman of color to tell her story, her remarkable, triumphant story, until she told her story, until she dared to make it visible to the world, and then was punished once again. George Saunders has also written us a permission slip to tell old stories with a new twist and what can come out of a spark just by holding in his mind an image of a parent holding their child's body consumed with grief. I'm immensely thankful that Elizabeth Keckley had the courage to publish her book. Yeah. And I'm so immensely thankful that George Saunders faced down the fear of creating his book, that he let the fear of having a regret push him to remove the barriers between him and his own creative self-expression. We are all the better for the book and for the reminder that the pain of keeping it inside of us may be greater than any pain we might experience in the creative process itself. And if we can push through, we get to freedom, true creative freedom. Camion. There's so much. It's so there's so much. There's so much. There's so much. I, I just want to go back. Mm-hmm. First of all, while you were talking, I did pull up some pictures of Mary Todd Lincoln so that I could, yeah, just see her face. And I'm so their last exchange oh. when she was holding his hand at the theater yeah. and saying like, "What will Mrs. So Harris mm-hmm. think of?" And you know, he's saying, "I don't know. Probably won't not think anything of it." I was like that it sounds like I mean it depends on he how he's if indeed that is what was said because yeah. you know, I think it came from her was it I a think. full moon was it a sliver of a yeah moon? that's right but mm-hmm. it's um mm-hmm. memory is that's fallible right. that's right but it's it seems like they liked each other his line reading could have been more dismissive or it could have been more affe- affectionate, but it seems like they liked each other enough to hold hands. Suze, they were also in public though. So they but were, it seems like they might've liked each other. But one of the criticisms of her is that she had so much influence over him and his political career. I mm. think he respected her intellect. I think, uh-huh. it, you know, we've seen what happens when we have, um, you know, vocal yeah. um, first ladies, but I think they had a mutual respect. I, I really do. I mean, there are stories of her temper and, you know, I'm certainly not saying that they didn't have, you know, maybe they had a real up and down. She may have been bipolar. We really don't know. What we know is whatever was going on with her, it was, you know, untreated or poorly treated by any kind of, you know, doctors. 
Yeah. But I also, I think when you started talking about her activism on behalf of enslaved people, I thought, man, these fighters throughout history, we have people, just the the first person that comes to mind, in addition to Mary Todd Lincoln, is Larry Kramer, like somebody who is they are comfortable living in the fight for yeah. whatever their cause is. Yeah. So whether it's, you know, to get people to pay attention to this AIDS plague that's sweeping yeah. through a community. And I think I'm so glad for the Larry Kramers and maybe the Mary Todd Lincolns in the world yeah. who are comfortable in that fight. I know that it's not my natural setting in the slightest, yeah. but if, but God bless those people that they are comfortable with it and they are yeah. called to and it made me wonder how much it makes me want to read more about her it makes me want to read the keckley book because that seems i don't Ooh. know it seems based on what i'm hearing from you it really seems like uh like a peephole yes into the life including it sounds like from the correspondence from mary todd lincoln to keckley to elizabeth keckley that like maybe she could be a fucking pain in the ass. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just like on an interpersonal level. 100%. But but I can also much more clearly imagine that if she was, I'm using little quotes, problematic for her time mm-hmm. because you know, to take a stance like that, an anti-slavery yes. stance, when it's sort of like it goes against your family's position in many ways, I it mean, goes, it speaks to financial gain and loss. Political, her husband's political career. All of it. It would be very easy to be, oh, like that is a person <sighs> who identifies as a woman who yes. is outspoken. And then if you have the legal lever to say, she's mentally ill and to have them institutionalized like that is some risky business to be that forward-footed and i i'm i don't know i i i want to learn more but i'm feeling you and i'm feeling this right the the blame that she took like i i described all the death that happened um you know directly in her life but while she and abraham lincoln when the civil war was going on they felt responsible for every death for you know thousands upon thousands of americans died killing each other and so you had People who did not support her stance, um, did not support, you know, were, did not agree with her being an abolitionist and hated her for her pushing that. You also had people, Northerners, who were fighting for the cause, but then when their sons died, she was to blame, you know, even though they agreed in the, you know, ideology she was to blame for their son dying. She really didn't have a lot of people who were like, um, you know, complete fans. It's fascinating. I'm realizing now Elizabeth Keckley, who I think famously made some dresses for Mary Todd Lincoln. Yeah, the, the inaugural is, is right? dress. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think I've seen some of these dresses mm-hmm. in museums in Washington, and perhaps it didn't register. So she's yeah. a fascinating sort of Renaissance person because not only is she a creative artist, I mean she's clearly a, a designer craftsperson, but she's also. Uh, 
by all accounts, a wonderful writer and a historian and And an amazing creative and a brave risk taker. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible, right? You know, this was an old bait and switch spark because (laughs) I thought we were all George Saunders and his spark of inspiration. But we got sparked by his sparks. Oh, man. Right? I love this. I mean, the fact that he read Elizabeth Keckley's um, memoir and that she, like, her voice is throughout this book as well because of how he, yeah, because of how he cites the. the, And um, also, it sounds like he couldn't have written that without her writing her book. No way. Otherwise, like, it would be pure fiction in terms of um, what we think might have been going on in the White House. But thanks to her voice wow. coming to us through time, through 150 yes. years later, her voice is resonating through this book, telling us, this is what my eyes saw. You know what it brings up there. for me, too? Yeah. We have clients, and I know I've had this feeling myself, this fear. There's that fear that if they write from their lived experience, they are going to make people angry. And one of the things, or, you know, upset or disappoint, whatever, one of the things that we sometimes say as we're processing through that is, you know, write like they're dead, like write as if, write like they don't get a vote. And I feel like Elizabeth Keckley is a great person to keep in mind about, yeah, you may take some heat. You may take some heat for what you write. But in the long lens of time, if you're an Elizabeth Keckley, it it really matters historically, That's creatively right. on influencing some great uh, works of art that are being produced in our lifetimes. That's right. It's really sort of like, yeah, it, I guess it, it in some ways it is a high stakes game. But I mean, I think about like, so people are still debating to this day, what was the truth of Lincoln? What was the truth of Mary Todd Lincoln? What was the truth of their relationship? You know, really like they want to get in there and no one can say the whole truth of anything. They can only say their truth. And Elizabeth Keckley shared her truth, what she lived through her eyes, through her heart. She put it on the page. That's all one can do. Yeah. Really. Well done. Oh, this was so surprising. My Lord. There's so uh, much, you know, there's just so much there and so much more that could be there. But please take it and make it, friends. Get out there and make some stuff. There's a lot to be made of it, I think. You know, when you were talking earlier about, is there anything I know that I want to do before I'm done? And one of the great, it's, it's just like, we'll never have enough time to live all the life we want to live and to read all the books we want to read and to, but I'm glad that I have you, Laura, because actually I'm like, Oh, well, Laura's um, like sharing a bunch (laughs) of stuff with me so that at least I'll get a little taste of it. Even if I don't get to all of it. A little extra. Yeah. 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 So keep reporting back to me on Lincoln and the Bardo. (laughs) Let's get our hands on Elizabeth Keckley's book. Yes, indeed. And it makes me want to read more about Mary Todd Lincoln. I want uh, I want someone be a good to musical. give it a real yes. I mean, mm, fuck yes, please. She can yeah. be a musical. Woo! 
Oh. That woman could be a musical. Hey, I think hey. that's it. This episode of The Spark File was made on the lands of the Lenape people and the Seminole people. And as always, we hope that it put another bunch of sparks in your file. Listen to me. If there is a spark that you'd like us to explore or you've taken a spark and fanned it into a creative flame and you'd like to share that with us, you can email us at thesparkfile at gmail.com or submit it through our website, thesparkfile.com. We'll even happily take your feedback, but you know the price of admission. First, you've got to share a creative risk that you have taken recently. You can follow us on social at The Spark File and be sure to subscribe, rate, and five-star review this podcast. If you have a chance to do it, it really helps other listeners to find Mm -hmm. us, especially subscribing. Also, if you like this podcast, we hope you'll share it with people that you love. And if you didn't like it, I don't know. We're all one, so on some level, that means you don't like yourself. I don't know. <laughs> oh, there's that. I don't know. I was going to say, put it in a book and publish it. Put it in a book. If something tickles your fancy and gets your creative juices flowing, we're writing you a forever permission slip to make that thing that has been knocking at your door. It's your turn to take a spark and fan it into a flame. You got to take it and, and make, make it. it. Uh Cams. When I bump into something that inspires me, I dump it in my spark files. Could be something that I wanna make or how I wanna be. I pump it in my spark files. I jump into my spark files. Let's open up the spark file. Did you ever wonder what it would be like to be part of the spark file coaching community? Here's how the spark file community describes it. The most honest, safe, life affirming and life changing experience I've had in all my 55 years, the best. I'm incredibly grateful to Laura and Susan for teaching me the tools and structures that I need to get past the fear and to just do it anyway. The Spark File is a portal to your creative powers and believing in yourself. This group is spiritually, emotionally, mentally supportive, creative, amazing, encouraging, life shifting and liberating uber talented warm thoughtful lovely wonderful people i need a group like this to give me the kick in the ass that i need to start making the things that i want to make and do there's a big beautiful creative trampoline that just like catches you gently and just launches you out with so much love if you want to learn more about the spark file creativity coaching including our six-month blaze course visit the slash blaze and schedule a no pressure no obligation call to find out what is possible and how we can support you it's time to take it and make it.